I don't think we met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> it is Robbie weekly. Hello everybody and welcome to Friday's Rugby Weekly on the eve of the Champions Cup final. Gavin Casey here and joining us to look ahead to Leinster La Rochelle is the one and only Gary Doyle of the 42. Gar, how are you? Good, Gav. Really good. Uh, great day down here and just really looking forward to to the weekend. Like, you know, just really looking forward to this match tomorrow. And it's, if you're, if you're any sort of fan, you would be like, you know, it's, it's two different styles in terms of the teams involved and it's a final and this is what we uh this is what we love about sport is big days like this yeah it certainly is we did a bit of a technical slash tactical breakdown for the 42 members on wednesday with own Toolan, and you and i were discussing before we started recording how we'd actually approach this show and like to be honest if we went down that route again i would certainly wind up parroting a lot of what owen was saying so i'm going to leave that to wednesday and all of the members can obviously tune into that one if they haven't already we're going to look at the game through a slightly different lens today gar i liked your idea of actually looking at the coaches involved in this the stories behind the guys who have brought these teams to marseille uh might have a chat as well about johnny sexton and his position in the pantheon of irish rugby greats if we have time towards the end but kick us off. Where do you want to start with this? Because like on both sides of the divide here, you have some really interesting backstories. They're familiar names to Irish fans, but maybe sometimes we take for granted the work that they have put in and the journeys that they have been on to get to this point. Yeah, I suppose the, the point, I'm writing about this for today's site as well, Gav. The point is that this is a 27th Champions Cup final, but it is only the second time that... Uh, the two finalists have provided a head coach from Ireland. The previous occasion was in 2019 when Leo Cullen uh, was in charge of Leinster and Mark McCall in charge of Saracens. So that in itself makes it, well, it's not unique, but it's only the second time it's happened, but it's unusual, okay? But what makes it even more unusual is if you if you study professional rugby in Ireland, you look at the fact that the national team hasn't had an Irishman in charge of the of Ireland since 2013. Okay, at Leinster alone, Cullen is only the third Irish coach, he, Irish head coach Leinster have had in a professional era, and the previous two only were in the job for a year. In Connacht, since Eric Elwood left, you've had a Simone, Pat Lamb, a New Zealander, and the current incumbent, an Australian, in Andy Friend. In Ulster, you're looking at a situation that since McCall left there, uh, you've got Bran McLaughlin, who took them to the 2012 Heineken Cup final, and you've also had Neil Doak's brief tenure in charge. Otherwise, you've had Matt Williams, Mark Anscombe, Les Kiss, John O'Gibbs, and Don McFarland. So in other words, there is a shortage of head coaches in Irish rugby over a long period of time, and they haven't, uh, they haven't necessarily been given the opportunities that people from abroad have been given, and now we're seeing that culture potentially changing. Okay, you're looking at you're looking at Munster, and they've appointed Graham Rowntree, but you're also looking at the fact that Mike Prendergast is being brought home from Paris. And then you're looking at what Ron Nogara has done and the bravery in his decision to 
always step outside his comfort zone, Gav. Like, I mean, you're going back to 2013 when he retired as a player. What's forgotten at this stage is that he had the opportunity to sign a one-year extension and to continue playing at Munster. But he decided that not only was he going to stop playing, but he was going to head off to Paris. And who was in Paris? But their star new signing, Johnny Sexton. And yet O'Gara was still prepared to have the nerve to pick up the phone, to call Sexton and say, how you doing, bud? Uh, guess who's coming? Guess who's coming to work with you? Um, he gets to Racing. He leaves his comfort zone. He's initially there as a kick and coach. He moves up the ladder, becomes skills coach, defense coach. You think back to that 2016 top 14 final in the new camp, racing against Toulon, there were 99,000 people in the stadium, okay? And that's still a world record crowd for a club game. 18 minutes into that game, Gav, the racing scrum half, Max Machineau, gets sent off for a spear tackle on Matt Gitto, okay? So the inevitable call that the commentators are saying is going to happen is that Lauren Travers and Lauren Labbott and O'Gara, the racing coaching team, are going to replace a scrum half of a scrum half. O'Gara actually makes the call and remembers something in his head that Juan Imhoff had played scrum half uh, at sevens level for Argentina. And he says, no, let's just hang a minute here, lads. Let's see how Imhoff gets on. And before you know it, he's having a cracking game and the defensive structure, and it's really hard to sort of picture the fact that O'Gara, this skinny little fly half, has turned into a defensive guru, but he puts a defensive system in place that allows Racing to absolutely nail this game. And before you know it, this coach, who only three years previously was a player, is making a huge mark in in a massive, massive stage and played a, played a massive part in, uh, in Racing winning that game. So I know I'm rabbiting on here, Gav. I'll, I'll cut the chase pretty quickly. He has uh-huh. always had the balls to make big decisions. He has had the balls to leave his comfort zone, not once, not twice, but three times. Because remember, he left Racing where he was was on a pretty good salary to take a pay cut to go to Christchurch to work with the Crusaders, where he knew he would advance his knowledge and become a better coach in the back of that. He goes down to New Zealand and his big takeaway from there is the fact that he sees how they man-manage their players and it's way different to the style of man-management that he encountered at Munster. And he does a really, really good job. There are two Super Rugby titles and then he leaves again. And rather than come back to Racing where again he knows the club, he knows the system, he can fit quite neat quite neatly in he instead hears of the opportunity at La Rochelle where he's going to be given additional responsibility to what he would have received at Racing so he goes there and within a couple of years he's the head coach and in his first season as a head coach he guides a team to a Hennington Cup final and when we consider the shortage of Irish coaches in top positions in European rugby over the last 20, 25 years. I just think it's an extraordinary achievement. And it hasn't really, it has been picked up on that, you know, obviously he's got a lot of publicity around the game, but not many people have identified the fact that we've two Irish coaches in charge of these teams tomorrow. And that's something that's only happened once before. And I think it's, I think it's something we have to take note of because we need to have a succession plan. Andy Farrell is going to be headhunted by England at some stage and we need to know, well, who's, who's the up-and-coming guys that can, can take, 
take hold of the baton. And here we've got two guys that are doing it at the top level, at club level. So therefore, they have a good chance of making that step up to international level. Well, just to touch upon his opposite number tomorrow, or his two opposite numbers, if you like, I always find the interpretation of Leinster's coaching structure quite interesting in that it has almost slipped into the vernacular at times among journalists, among fans, that like, oh, Stuart Lancaster has done a great job there, or Lancaster will be all over this, etc., like detail and whatever. But I always view, like, so what I'm saying in a sort of a clumsy way is that I actually think Leo Cullen is vastly underrated in his specific role at Leinster. And I personally always view how they work in tandem quite similarly to how Billy Walsh and Zorante would have operated at the top of Irish boxing during its most glorious period in the mid to late 2000s and early 2010s, like in the sense that you have two guys who were obviously extremely good coaches, like in the top 1% of coaches, Lancaster or Antia are almost that sort of head coach on the field, uh, working on technical things, absolute geniuses of their respective crafts. The guys sort of like, let's say working above them, so to speak, in uh, Cullen and Walsh, are obviously good coaches as well, but like what they bring to the table that doesn't really get discussed because it's not as tangible is that sense of being a glue that holds an, an entire operation together, but equally that man management side of things that Rog would have picked up on, uh, well, he would have picked up on different techniques in Christchurch, certainly, but that is such an understated and difficult thing to get right. Like, when have we heard over the last, I don't know, five, six years of any discontent, of any disharmony, of any even unhappy individual Leinster players. It's almost unheard of. And like to have a squad of their size and to be uh, rolling from success to success, at least domestically and getting to the latter stages of Europe while keeping everybody happy, even guys who are barely featuring, relatively speaking, is quite the feat. And I don't think that even if Lancaster was there and uh, acknowledging the fact that he is an unbelievable coach I don't think any of that would be possible without Cullen you know so like I don't know what I'm saying in a long winded kind of a way is that he, his work and his contribution to this as much as he is the face of it to a degree probably slips the radar a little bit do you agree or am I going overboard there no no I completely agree with absolutely everything you've said uh, and it's it's fascinating I think Another analogy is the Clough Taylor analogy uh, from the Nottingham Forest Derby County days in the in the 70s in soccer, in the sense that they're completely different skill sets. Like Clough was the motivator, Taylor was the guy that recruited uh, the the raw talents or and sort of brought them to Clough's. Uh, training ground and then Clough was the guy that said right okay like he converted a centre forward with a volatile temper Kenny Burns into one of the best centre backs in Europe there was an egotist Laurie Lloyd who he managed to control and then there were other gems like John Robertson was this sort of tubby centre midfielder that Clough converted into the best left winger in the world so that wouldn't have happened if uh, Taylor hadn't identified these players and presented them to the the genius that was Clough. In the same in the same uh, scenario here, you've got two different skill sets. So every Monday and every Tuesday, Gav at the at the Belfield training ground at Leinster, Lancaster works as magic. Um, you've got three teams, three sets of 15s that alternate in and out of training matches. And he, his big thing is he likes to create chaos in these sessions. And what I mean by that is that 
the play might be in one corner of the pitch and all of a sudden he gets a ball thrown into the opposite corner and the entire 30 players have to leg it to the far end of the field just when they're getting exhausted 15 players are taken off and another fresh team is brought on and they would create certain scenarios like there's a big scoreboard at their HQ so uh, Lancaster would say right it's 78 minutes 30 seconds on the clock lads you're two points behind team in bibs you're two points behind team without bibs you have to defend play it out play the play this scenario out so that sort of system from what I'm being told energizes players keeps them motivated because the quality of training is so high but that would only work to an extent if they uh, were that would not work sorry if they were not being given an opportunity to play so then this is where Cullen comes in Cullen has Cullen has this system Gav whereby he believes that everybody should be given an opportunity now it also leads to players uh, not playing very often in, in the URC and what I was said by players like the 15 players that Leinster have selected for, for tomorrow's game only one of those has played more than 8 games in the URC this season so that has afforded the opportunities to say the likes of Scott Penny now Scott Penny's stats are incredible he's he scored 23 tries in 42 games for Leinster but he That's hasn't played a Champions Cup game yet so what they're doing there is that they're giving Penny the opportunity to develop, um, to develop his career. They're keeping him happy by giving him plenty of opportunities in big games, like the game against Munster last week. But when it comes to selection for the biggest games of all, Cullen is being ruthless. So that is a skill set in itself, in that he is the guy that has to deliver the bad news. He is the one that has to pick the team. He is the one that has to, you know, try and keep a huge squad happy. Like this season, Leicester played, uh, picked 60 players. That's extraordinary. That's extraordinary numbers. But as you say, where are the guys that complain? You don't hear those voices. So in other words, they're managing that situation really, really successfully because over the course of the last four or five years, sorry, five seasons, they have been successful on two fronts. And a key, a key moment, Gav, in all of this was a really under-the-radar moment. Uh, they were stuffed by Connacht in 2018 out in the sports ground. And ever since that, they have made it a source of pride that they grow their legacy together and that it's not just the, the top-end players that, that get selected for the Champions Cup matches or, or get selected for the Irish international team. It is an all-in philosophy. And that is why they've been so ruthless and you don't see you don't see situations where they lose to Treviso anymore, which happened in 2018, the double winning season. So, yes, it is definitely a double act. And I think he does go under the radar a little bit, Cullen, but but he deserves credit for acknowledging his limitations for being the one that brought Lancaster in and before that for being the one that brought Graham Henry in uh, as a consultant for a summer to say right how do we get better what are we doing well uh, and more to the point how can I become better and how can this organization become better and you know the seeds are have were sown then and we're seeing the we're seeing what's happened since he has done a super job well as you say Raj deserves immense credit for showing the balls to 
remove himself from his comfort zone and try new things and take on new knowledge. And equally, Colin showed balls in a different sort of a way in publicly acknowledging, acknowledging rather his own fallibility, you know, and to be in a position he's in now, probably part of one of the great coaching partnerships in the history of Irish sport at this point. And, you know, as you say, in any walk of life or in any business or any organization, if you have a couple of guys at the top of it and you have 60 guys underneath them, all of whom are buying into what they do, if you have universal emotional investment on behalf of those 60 guys, that is a serious operation and that is a serious feat of management. So, uh, yeah, it kind of just felt like he should be uh, celebrated at the uh, on the eve of potentially winning a fifth. Now, looking at the teams, you speak of ruthlessness. No, Jordan Larmer is probably the only talking point from the Leinster team, and it was unlikely I would have said that he was going to be included despite his standout performance against Munster last week. There's actually not a great deal to say about this Leinster team. We're going to jo- talk about Johnny Sexton in a moment, but like... Actually, Gav, I actually think there is something to be said about this Leinster team because because when you look at their opposition, they lost to La Rochelle last year. But the team that played against La Rochelle last year, there was no Caelan Doris that day. There was no Andrew Porter. There was no Johnny Sexton. There was no Jemson Gibson Park. Reese Ruddock went off after 20 minutes. So everybody has gone on about the fact that they were kind of bullied last year. But that was a different Leinster that was bullied to the Leinster that is going to line out in Marseille tomorrow. So in that respect, I found the team selection uh, kind of interesting, not in the sense that I thought there'd be many changes from their performance against Toulouse, but more to compare it with the side that was picked to play and that ultimately lost in La Rochelle uh, a year ago. So I think it is significant in itself. Oh, it certainly is. And it's incredible to be even at full complement at this juncture of a season. It's it's kind of remarkable, really. I know there's a quite a high degree of luck involved in that, but also preparation and, and being so comfortable in your spot at the top of the URC that you can rest not only your frontline guys last week, but even some of their backups or some of the guys that you might include from 16 to 23. Larochelle selection, Gar, probably more interesting from the outside looking in, just in the sense that we knew there were going to be a couple of spots available and we wondered say would Will Skelton feature he came off the bench against Stad last weekend played 13 minutes but still a few weeks back it seemed an impossibility so you're kind of wondering does he does Raj utilize him as an impact sub again he actually starts but there is no Tawara Kerbarlow at scrum half we knew he was going to be out Victor Vito also misses out in the back row with an ankle injury interestingly uh, Vito is replaced by Matthias Haddad who uh, had three years, I think, with France under 20s. I remember seeing him uh, stand out a couple of times with them. He, I was reading Paul Edison, who's a, a journalist in the UK who follows rugby and, and clearly follows French rugby as well. He noted that Haddad set a target for himself at the start of this season of making 10 first-team appearances. Tomorrow is going to be his 15th. And uh, last week, he played 7-8 and played the final minutes final minutes at Inside Centre, if anybody watched that La Rochelle game with Stad, He made his European debut in the last 16 and he starts a European Cup final against Leinster. That's quite the turnaround and quite the acceleration in his development. Looking at that La Rochelle team then, Gar, and like, I don't know to what degree we can really compare and contrast with last season's game purely because, as we discussed with Owen on Wednesday and indeed with Birch on several times on recent Mondays, this Leinster team is a more formidable looking outfit, not only with the personnel available to them tomorrow, but in terms of how they have actually expanded their palette and their ability to play 
almost all types of rugby where necessary. Like, do you still see threats in that La Rochelle team? Which way are you sort of leaning as we kind of uh, ease towards the prediction section of this chat? Yeah, absolutely. You see threats. I mean, you, you look at the size of the players like Skelton and Aldrit and Antonio, and you know they're going to cause difficulties, but you kind of expect that in the final anyway, Gav. I mean, mm. nobody gets to a final of a competition by being a, a, a lucky side or by being a bad side. So, of course, they're going to have their moments. And when they do have their moments, Leinster, you know, they just have to sort of dig in and, and, and cope as best they can. The key to this game comes down to the speed of the rock ball. It's a, I think it's as simple as that. Uh, when you look at Skelton and Aldrit and Antonio and you're going, right, will, they, will their size allow them to slow Leinster's ball? If they do, then La Rochelle have a chance. If they don't and the ball and play time goes towards the 40-minute mark, then I think you're looking at a situation where Leinster will win and win as handily as they want. So that, I actually think the key, the key person tomorrow is going to be Wayne Barnes because yeah. if he referees the breakdown favourably from a Leinster perspective, Leinster are going to win. You know? yeah, it's game over. Game over. Yeah. It is because we saw against Toulouse just how relentless they are, how, how good their ball retention is, how, how rare it is to see a ball being spilled. Like their skill levels are really high. Their speed uh, is is remarkable. The angles they run at. If you think back to the the try uh, that Gibson Park orchestrated against Leicester, uh, when six of the forwards were involved over I think thirteen phases, and this was against the Gallagher Premiership leaders, and they just couldn't you know land a glove on on Leinster, and you just think of what they did against Toulouse over over 80 minutes. That that day, the ball and play time went to just under 40 minutes and Toulouse couldn't cope. And La Rochelle are going to hope to keep it under 30 minutes. And if they do, they have a chance. But really, so much will depend on how Barnes referees and his interpretation of the breakdown. If Leinster win the breakdown, game over. Yeah, 100%. We were saying it on Wednesday. Sometimes it is as simple as <laughs> whoever wins that battle wins the game. It, it feels simplistic, and yet it is very much true, we think, of tomorrow's game. Just to touch upon Johnny Sexton before we wrap, Gar, and probably similarly to... Well, actually, it's a little bit different to Leo Cullen in the sense that I think every Irish rugby fan understands how great a player Johnny Sexton has been or at least they understand that he has been a great player but maybe we don't <laughs> acknowledge how truly great he has been and like it's moments like this where you take stock and realize if he wins another Champions Cup tomorrow it's his fifth he's been on the go for Leinster since 2006 but say began to rise to prominence in 2009 makes his international debut that same year you would have thought there would have been almost a changing of the guard at that point. There kind of was, obviously, when he started against the box that November. Raj did put up a fight, though, for the next couple of years, even going on to start that World Cup quarterfinal in 2011. But, like, just looking at Sexton's body of work, you and I were sort of chatting during the week, and you were saying if he wins tomorrow, there might be an argument that he overtakes Brian Driscoll as Ireland's best ever player, certainly best player of the professional era. Uh, are you standing with that before I continue? I think, it, yeah, I think it's got to be, if he, if he keeps winning, 
it has to become a real discussion point, Gav, because if you, let's, let's look over his body of work, right? You think back to the 2014 Six Nations game, the title decider against France. Sexton got 17 of the 22 points that day, okay? You think of his Lions experiences, much more impressive than O'Driscoll's Lions experiences in that he gets a try in the decisive test win against Australia in 2013. He turns the series in 2017 after he was introduced for the second and third tests following the All Blacks winning the first test of that three-match three series. Okay, we'll go to 2018. Uh, the 41 phases against France. He lands the drop goal, which sends Ireland towards the Grand Slam. Later that summer in Australia, where Ireland haven't won a test series since 1979, the rest sexing for the first test. It's the only test Ireland lose all year. He comes back for the second and third. He's instrumental in Ireland winning that series. You think of the three wins over New Zealand. Can you imagine Ireland winning any of those matches without Sexton on the pitch? I can't, personally. I just can't. You think back to that game you referenced against the Springboks in 2009, his second cap. He scores all 15 points in the match. They win 15-10. Not only that, he sustains a broken hand in the game, but he plays on. You think the 2011 Heineken Cup final, they're losing at half time. It looks like they're going to get stuffed. He scores 28 points in the match. You think of the following year's Heineken Cup final, he gets 15 points against Ulster. You think of the crucial penalty he got was first kick of the game in the 2009 semi-final against Munster, the drop goal in the final against Leicester in 2009. You look at the stats, six Pro 14 titles, a Challenge Cup, four Heineken Cups, a Grand Slam, a Triple Crown, two Six Nations titles. How do we determine success, Scav? Is it by a series of beautiful moments that you've you throw up on YouTube or is it by medals? And the more medals that Sexton wins makes you wonder, like at what stage do we just acknowledge that yes, so Driscoll was absolutely great. Yes, Paul O'Connell was an absolute great. They're on the, the Mount Rushmore of Irish rugby greats. But I mean, if Sexton keeps winning, then his tallies and his CV is just lengthier than O'Driscoll's. And at some point you have to measure greatness by a guy's CV. And I'm not saying he's there yet, but he's getting there. Yeah, I agree. Well, I actually think he is there, truthfully. Um, I, I, I think he is, well, in my head, I already have him as number one. And I tell you, I do think that there are different ways to define greatness within a sporting context. Sometimes it's subjective to the point that it might just be what a player actually meant to you, right? I mean, it's only one person's opinion at the end of the day. You're never going to reach a consensus on the greatest at anything. But if you combine, so I would say that eye test wise, who was like, I think you could absolutely make the argument that Brian O'Driscoll was a kind of a better player in terms of all of the aspects of his game or what he could do. But I think upon reflection, as you say, when you put together the body of work, the CDV that Sexton has, and you combine it with that more intangible thing of his being absolutely clutch in all of those moments that you've listed, and many more, by the way, uh, which is a, a quality that O'Driscoll had as well as looking great. You know what I mean? Sexton has probably had a few more of those sort of match-winning moments or match-defining moments purely through longevity itself. So that's where I'm kind of thinking he has a nose ahead now at this point. Yeah, I agree with you completely there, Gav. It's not that O'Driscoll wasn't a great at all. It's not that O'Driscoll didn't have huge influence because he did, like the 2009 Grand Slam. 
was down to him, firstly, O'Connell, secondly, O'Gara, thirdly, okay? But it's just the body of work, the number of key moments that O'Sexton has had in his career, it's just getting longer and longer, and it doesn't look like it's going to stop because he was man of the match in the semi-final against Toulouse. So it's not just that he's on the pitch as a token effort, as a sort of a glorified lop of honour for a great career. He's on the pitch because he's the best player on the pitch. And yeah. that's, that's what's persuading me to think that this, we could be seeing a changing of the guard here, that he could surpass O'Driscoll uh, potentially in the next, in the next uh, 15 months, 16 months. Like if he brings, he, say, say Ireland, God forbid, can you imagine Ireland finally win a World Cup quarterfinal and he's on the pitch when that happens? Then it's conversation over. <laughs> it's true enough. It's true enough. Well, I will qualify our Sexton love-in as well by saying that as much as we are acknowledging that Brian O'Driscoll had many, many innumerable actual uh, massive contributions to both Leinster and Ireland on the field of play, he also played for an international team that was far less equipped to compete for titles quite often than Sexton has. You could argue that O'Driscoll's contribution has been almost a, a seed from which a lot of this has blossomed as well. So uh, it, important to acknowledge that as well. Sexton has actually had a platform, generally speaking, to go and be the standout player that he is whereas often O'Driscoll had to bend a game to its to his own will in order for that to happen but no I still I still think we're just about right on this I'd be interested to hear what people at home think listeners if you want to email us your complaints please send them to uh, adrian at the 42.er editor <laughs> listen Gar uh, call it for us before we go Leinster or La Rochelle yeah Leinster I think by 15 points interesting it was a pleasure to speak to you as always Pleasure, Gav. Thanks very much. To everybody at home, we will be back on Monday with Bernard Jackman looking back over the Champions Cup final. That's for the 42 members. We do that every Monday uh, morning, afternoon time. Then we've got Wednesday's pods with Owen Tulin, also exclusive to the 42 members. And if you want to become a member of the 42, simply visit members.the42.ie. All of the details are there. It'll take you about two minutes. You get all of those extra rugby podcasts and many more across a range of sports, plus a load of other offerings. As I say, the details are all there. Listen, to Leinster fans, to Irish rugby fans, to rugby fans, generally speaking, who tune in, enjoy the game tomorrow. Enjoy the Challenge, the challenge Cup final as well this evening as we record on Friday. And until Monday for members or until this time next week for non-members. Mind yourselves. Take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could have me five mil a year. I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> it is Rugby, rugby, weekly. Little reverse pass. Oh!